Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 26 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful, snow-covered downtown Minneapolis. I'm the moderator of the Town Hall Forum. We invite those of you listening on Minnesota Public Radio to visit us in person. Each forum is free and open to the public. Information on our spring season, our so-called spring season, can be found online at eWestminster.org. It's now my pleasure to introduce the first speaker in our current series. For generations, the family of Devar Ardalan has claimed two countries as their home. She was born Iran Devar Ardalan in San Francisco and was only six months old when she and her parents migrated to their ancestral home of Iran. She spent her childhood and early school years in Tehran, but returned to America to attend secondary school in Brookline, Massachusetts. After graduation from high school, she moved back to Iran where she worked as a television broadcaster, married, and gave birth to her first child. In 1987, eight years after Iran's Islamic Revolution, she again returned to America, this time to stay. She earned a degree in communications and journalism from the University of New Mexico and began her career in radio broadcasting. For 16 years, she has worked with National Public Radio and now serves as a senior producer for Morning Edition, one of the most widely heard radio news magazines in the United States. Ms. Ardalan has produced hundreds of stories for NPR, including the documentary, My Name is Iran, a series that explored through the lives of her own family, the history and culture of the country for which she was named. Her recent memoir, published under the same title, traces her life as the daughter of two divergent but beloved homelands, Iran and America. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Devar Ardalan. Thank you to Pastor Tim Hart Anderson, to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, to the people of Minnesota and to the public radio community for this tremendous honor to speak before you today. I'd like to share with you the story of Iran the woman and Iran the nation as it has presented itself to me. Let me take you back to October of 2003 when it was announced that an Iranian human rights lawyer named Shireen Abadi was the winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. That day marked yet another turning point in my life. An Iranian professor of political science noted in an email that throughout Iran's modern history, the question of law, the relationship between secular and religious law, and the concerns about due process have been the main preoccupation of many lawyers, judges, and law professors in Iran. Nobel laureate Shirin Abadi, the scholar noted, is only the latest fruit from a big tree with deep roots in modern Iranian history, starting with Ali Akbar Davar. Ali Akbar Davar was my great-grandfather, Iran's Minister of Justice in 1927. 
The professor noted that someone should write a book from Davar to Abadi, Iran's search for a lawful society. I took this idea to my editors at American Radio Works, Minnesota Public Radio, and NPR, and they were immediately sold on the idea. Together with Iranian-American scholar Rasul Nafisi, we began the research for the radio documentary. Rasul went to Iran and interviewed lawyers, moderate clerics, and visited Iran's Islamic courts. And I went to Oslo to cover the Nobel Peace Prize awarded to Shireen Abadi and interview other noted Iranian human rights activists. Before the Islamic Revolution of 1979, Iran was the first country in the Middle East to bring together secular and sacred law, that is, European legal code from France and Belgium, combined with Islamic jurisprudence known as Sharia law. A legal code developed in 1927 did away with extreme Islamic punishments such as stoning and lashing. My great-grandfather was the architect of that legal code. Davar studied law in Geneva and after 11 years abroad came back to Iran in the early 1920s and was one of the people who helped bring to power Reza Shah Pahlavi. He had a Machiavellian perspective. He believed that you need an iron fist like Pahlavi to stand up to the old ways, and as such, the ends justifies the means. Between 1927 and 1932, Davar dismantled and reorganized the Ministry of Justice. He put an end to the practice of the law of retribution, or qisas, among other things, a law which mo mostly victimized women. He limited the role of the Islamic clerics to operating the bureaus of marriage and divorce, divorce and state-licensed notaries. Along with his law colleagues, he drew up this progressive legal code, created local, state, and federal judicial systems. He helped train hundreds of judges and e even convinced some of the clerics to take off their religious garbs and put suits on. But Davar's growing popularity with the people of Iran and his insistence on breaking free from the British began to arouse the anger of the monarch. The Shah would not allow any powerful or popular individual to rise above him. Davar began seeing the erosion of some of the democratic reforms that he had sought. Bureaucrats who had become too powerful, some of Davar's dearest colleagues who had helped Reza Shah Pahlavi with the modernization of Iran were jailed, some were murdered in prison. 49 years old, Davar's dream of due process and democracy in Iran had failed. Instead of waiting for his fate to be decided by the monarch, he took his own life in February of 1937, 80 years ago. I asked Shireen Abadi what she thought of my great-grandfather. She looked at me straight in the eyes and she said, Davar changed the laws. I realize that as a lawyer like Davar, Shireen Abadi today understands the power of words. She knows the danger of ideas, dangers of ideas like due process and justice. Throughout Iran's history, on these ideas alone, many have died and many more have been imprisoned. By the early 1980s, after the Islamic Revolution, all the judicial reforms my great-grandfather had put in place were dismantled by the clerical government. In October of 1986, one of Iran's most powerful religious bodies decreed that the Supreme Judicial Council will be authorized to hire judges with minimal experience. Shireen Abadi, a judge, was taken off the bench because she was a woman. 
These judges would, able to work, would be able to work as long as they had worked in the revolutionary prosecutor's office in judicial positions for more than three years without regard to the legal bill on the qualification of judges and provided that they had at least a high school diploma. Today, Shireen Abadi is part of a larger peaceful movement in the Islamic world for more moderation. At the heart of her battle for human rights and women's and children's rights in Iran is her call to reinterpret Islamic law. She's using Islamic law itself to reform Iran's system. In her Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech, she cited the Islamic book, the holy book, the Quran, to make the point that the people who know their rights are more likely to be free. Islam, she says, is a religion where the first divine address to its prophet begins with the command to read. The Quran swears by the pen and what is written. Such an address cannot be in conflict with awareness, knowledge, wisdom, freedom of opinion and expression and cultural pluralism, Abadi says. If human rights are not manifested in codified laws, she says, then human beings will be left with no choice but to stage rebellion against tyranny and oppression. Robin Wright of the Washington Post, who has covered Iran for three decades, says Shireen Abadi is part of a larger movement in the Islamic world. The 50-plus nations of the Islamic world are beginning to go through their reformation, and that means reinterpreting Islam to allow for multiple interpretations so that there is not just one set of ideas, one true path that directs all Muslims. And this is a process that is going to be very difficult, very traumatic, and even tumultuous in the Islamic world. After Oslo, as I sat in the nation's capital in my office at NPR, searching for a title for the radio documentary, I turned to Deborah George, my editor, and said, you know, my first name is actually Iran. It was then that Deborah insisted that be the title of the radio stories. I too realized that I should no longer hide my full identity, veil it from my American colleagues, friends, and live in two separate worlds. It all came together at that moment. The country of Iran had been declared part of the axis of evil. I felt empowered that the axis of evil label had been an unfair generalization. I am Iran, yet I am not evil. There was much more to both the country of Iran and the woman. Iran has over 2,500 years of rich history, art, architecture, poetry, both mythical and historic, all of a part of my life and my identity. So when I sat down to write the book, I knew I had to write about the rich cultures that had cultivated me as a woman. I knew I had to write about the Shahnameh, the great Arthurian-like chronicle of Iran's pre-Islamic history. The poet Ferdowsi played a significant role in my family's life and psyche. You see, my American grandmother, Helen Jeffries of Boise, Idaho, was romanced by her Rudolf Valentino, his name was Abul Ghassan Bakhtiar, through the stories of the Shahnameh. It happened of all places in Harlem, New York in 1927. My grandmother, Helen, was a nurse at Harlem Hospital, and my grandfather, Abul Qasem, was a physician. He was 33 years her senior. Abul Qasem said to Helen, yours can be a crusade of public health in the country of Iran. Think of all the people you can help by coming back with me. And they did. The two went back to Iran in 1931 and opened one of the first hospitals. By 1938, Helen and Abul had seven children while maintaining the hospital. 
Helen recalled that every time she fixed up the living room, Abel would bring a cadaver home to study it. The Islamic clerics did not allow for cadavers to be studied on. Later, in 1949, as part of President Truman's Point Four mission to Iran, Helen gave selflessly of herself to the villagers of Iran. She went through the distant villages teaching healthcare and the importance of young women learning about prenatal care. She negotiated with the local clerics the importance of educating girls. Helen was a woman who rose above the politics of nations. She was not from Idaho or Iran. She was not a Christian or a Jew. She was a human being. My mother was Helen's youngest daughter. Her name is Mary Nell. She grew up Catholic in Washington, D.C., and met my father, Nader, on a blind date at Chatham College in Pittsburgh. My father later attended Harvard, and armed with his degree in architecture, my parents decided to take our family, my mother, my sister, and I, to Iran, to the town of Solomon's Mosque, where my father had accepted a job with the Iranian oil company to design housing for its workers in the oil fields of southwestern Iran. This barren land of Iran would be where our family made its first attempt at integrating modernity in the form of architecture into a place steeped in tradition. My father's mentor, the great architect Lu Khan, had observed that traditions are great mounds of golden dust, free of circumstance. If you grasp of this golden dust, you will gain the powers of anticipation of the future. Later, as my parents researched their book on Persian architecture called The Sense of Unity, The Sufi Traditions in Persian Architecture, we traveled as a family throughout Iran. It was in these trips, especially a two-week trip through Iran's salt desert, that taught me about the importance of history and cultural relativity. We traveled onto the city of Kashan. On the outskirts of the city sat the Garden of Fien, where we gazed at the mountain spring water carried by subterranean aqueducts called Qanots that followed along a brick-lined path. Given the climate of Iran, water plays a vital role. Cities were built near mountains, and the life-generating force of water is considered a treasure. Built around water, the garden is the most important place in the life of an Iranian. If someone does not have his or her own garden, they must at least have a garden carpet inside the home to take place of the missing garden and a courtyard outside with a small pool or fountain of water. One section of the sense of unity explores how a garden reflects a sense of place. A sense of place, as my parents defined it, consists of two elements, a container and what it contains. The container, meaning what surrounds, was in the city of Kashan, the wall that surrounds the gardens. Inside the wall is the contained, the inner space, where trees and flowers are laid out in geometric compartments, fed by these waterways that flow along the same grid. In the middle is a pavilion, which is often open on all sides to the garden. The sense of joy and wonder of a beautiful Persian garden engulfs the senses by being first hidden, then revealed and through the use of numbers, geometry, color, and substance. But soon, this sense of unity was shattered. My grandfather, Abul Qasim, died, and then my grandmother, Helen, died. My parents divorced, and then came the 1979 Islamic Revolution that changed the course of history, all this happening within a five-year period. A cataclysmic event, the modern world's first theocracy. Our international school closed down, and my sister and I came to Boston to join my father. I was 16 years old, attending Brookline High School. 
but 52 American hostages were still being held in Tehran, and I felt ashamed and embarrassed to say my name is Iran. I decided to drop my first name and go by Devar or Davar, and it was here when I had my own identity crisis. Where do I belong? Am I Iranian? Am I American? Am I Muslim? And then I came upon a poem by a Persian poet, Rumi, the great mystic. The poem says, what is to be done, O Muslims, for I do not recognize myself. I am neither Christian, nor Jew, nor Zoroastrian, nor Muslim. I am not of the East, nor of the West, nor of the land, nor of the sea. I am not of nature's mint, nor of the circling heavens. I am not of India, nor of China, nor of Bulgaria, nor of Spain. I am not of the kingdom of Iraq, nor of the country of Khorasan. My place is the placeless. My trace is the traceless. It is neither body nor soul, for I belong to the soul of the beloved. I have put duality away. I have seen that the two worlds are one. One I seek, one I know, one I see, one I call. Longing to find a part of me that I had lost, I agreed to return to the Islamic Republic of Iran. I wore the veil, left the Western world, and flew back to revolutionary Iran to be with my mother. I went back to Iran, where my mother and brother still lived, and agreed to an arranged marriage. A year later, I was selected as a newscaster for the Islamic Republic of Iran, wearing the veil, and I submitted to the Islamic dream I was hoping to create for myself. I learned about Muslim icons such as Fatima, the daughter of the Prophet, and Khadija, the Prophet's wife, who was a successful businesswoman. But soon, I saw hypocrisy surrounding my Islamic dream. Drug addiction was high, especially to heroin, and it affected those very close to me. Prostitution was high, marriages were falling apart, and on the occasion of Women's Day in 1986, I was invited to meet the Ayatollah Khomeini. He said to us on this day, do as Fatima did, the daughter of the prophet. She always spoke out against the injustices of her times. I felt that perhaps now I could quietly begin to question this Islamic dream. Because life was not blissful, my spiritual center was constantly shifting, and I sensed the superficiality of the Islamic dream. I was able to convince my husband to come back to America so I could continue my education, and it was in New Mexico that I got my journalism degree and began my journey in public radio, and later made it to NPR in Washington. Throughout the past 14 years at NPR, I have helped produce significant series on Iran, along with my colleague Jackie Leiden. Given that I do not have my divorce according to Iran's Sharia law, I have not traveled back to Iran, but since 1993, I have helped my NPR colleagues tell the story of Iran stateside. It was surreal. As a producer, I logged all the tape and took each voice in, as if it were wool dyed in brilliant colors, and together with Jackie began weaving them into a larger tapestry. I could not see the faces of the women Jackie interviewed, but I heard their voices and the ambient sounds of Iran. I saw before me the scenes of places I had visited as a child, hammer pounding on copper trays. Yes, we are in the bazaar. And there is the sound of the designer etching. And here is the shrine and the sound of people in prostration and prayer, Allahu Akbar. I could see the motion of their hands, and there are the huge wooden doors opening up to a carven sarai, where rugs were piled high. I had the rhythm, and I was in ecstasy. My edit booth became the courtyard in which I sound, sat, surrounded by women, traditional and modern, young and old, religious and secular, 
debating the fundamental questions of life, loss, and liberty. Strewn across the edit booth were yards of analog tape, each labeled to correspond with a voice, a thought, a moment in time. And then each voice began to echo like a shadow from my own past. Each tale was like a metaphor for the dynamic patterns in the life of this Iran. My colleagues at NPR report from Iran regularly. Today, with a hardline president like Mahmoud Ahmadinejad at the helm, there are signs that for many religious and secular women, the experiment has failed to create the society they had hoped for. In December 2003, I went to Oslo and I covered the Nobel Peace Prize. This summer, Shireen Abadi and other women's rights activists have led a campaign to collect one million signatures from Iranian women and men calling for a change to Iran's discriminatory laws. The laws will not change overnight, but politically active women right now, today, are using nonviolent means in their silent protest for change in Iran. But these activists are only making incremental changes, and that has been frustrating for those who want to see tangible change in Iran fast. There are those who believe Iran will only change with strong international pressure, and there are those who insist regime change is the only solution. Shireen Abadi, who has remained in Iran by choice, says support the efforts of Iran's Islamic reformers. The people of Iran have been facing continuous challenges of reconciling tradition and modernity for over 100 years, Abadi says. Iranians should finally be allowed to have a part in choosing their own destiny. Feminism in Iran sounds like an impossible contradiction, but Iranian women are among the most active reformers in the Muslim world. They're pushing the interpretation of Islamic law in ways that modernize the treatment of women. The debate over religion and modernity in the Muslim world will continue for decades to come. But Iran, the birthplace of the first modern theocracy, might very well be preparing for a future Islamic reformation. Thank you. Thank you, Devar Ardalan. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, senior minister at Westminster Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is journalist and author Devar Ardalan. We invite those listening in our radio audience to phone questions into Westminster Church. The phone number is area code 612-332-3421. That's 612-332-3421. And while the ushers collect questions from the audience here at Westminster, I would like to thank the Hognander Family Foundation for its help in making today's forum possible. We invite you to the Westminster Town Hall Forum on Thursday, March 15th, in two weeks, when Bill George, former CEO of Medtronic and professor of management practice at Harvard Business School, joins us for his presentation on filling the leadership vacuum. Further information on our spring series is available online at eWestminster.org. And now, Ms. Ardalan, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. Again, the phone-in number for those listening on the radio, 612 332 3421. The first question 
refers to the Islamic Reformation you mentioned uh, more than once in your talk and at the conclusion of your remarks. Can you describe for us places where we might see signs of that Reformation unfolding today in the world? Sure. Um, you know, from Tunisia to Malaysia to Indonesia, across the Islamic world, you will see how there are many different ways of interpreting Islam. And uh, Muslims in Tunisia will call themselves Muslims and believers, and so will the Muslims in Saudi Arabia. And it's important to note that in every one of these countries, there are women who are pushing the limit in terms of asking for reinterpretation of Islamic law. And I will say that um, here in this country, American Muslims are also at the forefront of this uh, because they are in a country where they are allowed to have dialogue and be able to talk to one another. And uh, I will just give a very personal example. Um, my mother is on the last stages of uh, uh, translating the Quran and uh, it'll be coming out in the next few months. Uh, she has taken it upon herself after 30 years of studying Islamic uh, philosophy and Islamic theology uh, to reinterpret the word, you can, the sentence, you can beat your wife. Now, this clearly has a lot of connotations to it, but she has actually gone back in the scriptures and in the uh, traditions of the Prophet. The Prophet Muhammad never beat his wives, and uh, she has many... Uh, you know, uh, arguments for supporting what she has done. But this is just one example uh, of somebody who is uh, coming up, uh, women who have been educated in the areas of law and jurisprudence more and more are uh, speaking out. And so I think that uh, across the Islamic world you see this. As Robin Wright pointed out, uh, the 50 plus Islamic nations are going through this right now. You reflect some on the response from the Christian community in both America and other places around the world to the, uh, the efforts of some to reform Islam from within. Yes. Well, I mean, I think that uh, the importance is to uh, do what you are doing uh, uh, today, which is to be able to uh, allow for dialogue and to be able to allow for one another to get to learn from one another. And I think that there are so many examples of interfaith groups that empower one another. And uh, you have traveled throughout the Middle East, you know, you have traveled to many different parts of the world. And I think that uh, as an American Muslim, I applaud that and I hope, I wish we could do more of that because I think it's when we come together that uh, we are able to learn from one another. And it's from, city, you know, everywhere, from Chicago to Detroit to New Mexico, there are interfaith groups that support one another. And uh, I think that we have to break down the fear barrier and not fear one another and want to be able to learn about our commonalities. And that is happening, but unfortunately not on a larger scale. I, I just wanted to point out that um, someone told me that during the Cold War in the 1980s, there was an occasion where uh, in a group, a Russian group were brought together with a group of Americans. John Denver played and a Russian artist played and uh, that was because they wanted to bring Russians and Americans in one room to be able to show that they're not fearful of one another. And I think the example of the music that was played here today is exquisite in the sense that we can be in a room together and you know, have dialogue and communicate. And I look forward to doing more of that. 
In your book and in your talk, you uh, quote often from the Sufi mystic poet Rumi. Could you give to us a brief description of Sufi Sufism? Yes. Uh, Sufism is the mystical dimension of Islam, and it has its roots uh, really going back to the origins of Islam. And in fact, it started more uh, in the Sunni branch of Islam. And it was because uh, there was a yearning to be able to have a relationship with God, a direct relationship with the Beloved. And uh, Sufis uh, take pride in saying that they uh, spend you know, hours and days in meditation and in the love of God. Uh, so for them, it's not the sort of uh, strict dogma of did you pray five times a day and did you make sure that you know at 12.05 you did this or that. Uh, it's more about the relationship between yourself and God. And it's a lifelong quest where you are in search of uh, that relationship with God. And I think that um, I'm currently uh, very blessed to be uh, living with uh, a Catholic, a devout Catholic, and he is very much... Uh, on the same spiritual path. I mean, and, and I think that's why I go to church with him and find tremendous amount of solace in listening to the prayers and being able to come home and discuss uh, how much God means to us in our lives and how much that has given us our center and you know a reason for living is because we know that we want to have God in our lives and for God to give us grace and blessings question about the, the typical or average Iranian in Iran. What is most influential for them in their worldview, their nationality as a, an, an Iranian, uh, their religion as a Muslim, or their clan or family relationships? Sure. I think that in the last 30 years with the experiment of the theocracy, uh, there was perhaps a great uh, yearning by the leaders, the cler clerical leaders, to uh, change Iran to become a country, as an Islamic country, where the young generation all followed all the tenets of the faith and, uh, you know, would become the future revolutionaries, and that's not what we're seeing. 65% of Iranians are under the age of 30, and they very much are yearning for a civil society, for a voice. And my colleague Rasul Nafisi, who traveled to Iran and travels many times to Iran, uh, has coined a term, uh, internal exile. And many Iranians live in Iran in internal exile, away from the edicts of the government. They have their own life where they enjoy satellite radio and you know very westernized style of living. And uh, when they come out in public, they wear the scarf. I think that uh, what you're seeing um, is that, and it has reflected itself in the last 30 years of Iranian psyche, is that whenever there is strong international pressure, and in the terms of the clerical establishment, bullying from the U.S., then immediately there is a sense of national pride that we all have to come together, we're Iranians, we can't allow um, America to bully us. And this goes back to centuries of domination, of foreign domination on Iran. I mean, you know, they're the British, they're the Russians. And so you have to understand that in, 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 when you put it in terms of the context of history, that Iranians are very, it's very important for them not to be bullied from the outside. And so when it becomes, you know, in that light, they become very nationalistic and, uh, you know, stand up for their, uh, sort of the national integrity of their country. Um, but when they are allowed to uh, be on their own and to explore on their own, uh, they are very much hungry and thirsty for knowledge 
there are not enough universities for all these young people to go to. And that is why the, uh, we have the unfortunate statistics of 695% rise in prostitution. Um, the, you know, the number of uh, young people who are addicted to heroin has, you know, is, is at a crisis point. And this is all because all these young people don't have enough to do. And um, it's, it's a very unfortunate uh, situation for them. So it's, it's also that the economic situation is very difficult right now. So it's not as though people have time to think about sort of their future or their government, their form of government. They're, some of them are just trying to make ends meet every day. I'll have recent events in Iraq, the war in Iraq, and especially the country's national elections affected any desires or possibilities for reforms in Iran, its neighbor? Well, when Rasul went to Iran in 2003, the first taxi he got into, the cab driver says, when is Bush coming? And this was before Iraq, because Iranians thought that they would be first, that, uh, you know, that America had plans to have military action against Iran uh, because of the uh, nuclear threat and everything. And so now with the experiment uh, that has happened in Iraq, uh, it's for many Iranians, that is the last thing they want, is for you know, uh, America to invade them. And so uh, Shireen Abadi will be the first person to tell you that her efforts for reform have been very, you know, has, have become much more difficult since the tremendous amount of pressure that has come to the country of Iran from the outside because the clerical establishment is very suspicious of people like her and other reformists. And so it has actually uh, diminished her role and her abilities in her reform movement. Can you speculate on several possible steps U.S. Uh, politicians, either in the current administration or in Congress, could do to facilitate Iranian reform would it involve trade or foreign policy changes? What else could we do uh, to move along our politicians in encouraging a constructive position toward Iran? Sure. Uh, I mean, I think as a journalist, it's my responsibility to understand both sides of the argument. And so I understand the great fear that exists uh, when it comes to Islamic extremism and the threat that that might pose to the West. And so uh, but when I uh, sort of listen and talk to, uh, and, and on NPR, we've had many different U.S. policymakers, um, uh, one uh, quote that stands out is uh, former Secretary of State Richard Armitage, who has said that uh, diplomacy is not just for our friends, uh, that we need to use diplomacy with people that we dislike as well. And in fact, there is now a chorus of voices from former State Department officials and former uh, Middle East analysts uh, who have come out and talked about the need to be able to have dialogue, that perhaps 30 years of containment and uh, threats of military action have not changed the Iranian government. And uh, again, it's important to listen to the voices from inside Iran that are trying to bring about change. And they're saying that that does not help. This kind of containment and pressure has not helped them in their cause for reform. And so, I think it's very difficult to say what the, you know, the top three steps are, but I think that it's important at some point to consider communicating and having dialogue. 
Memory of the American Embassy hostage crisis in Tehran is still vivid for many Americans, although it happened now nearly 30 years ago. How is that crisis, that event, that time of history, uh, viewed today by Iranians, both those here in America and those in Iran? Well, I mean, definitely here in America, uh, you know, Iranian Americans are obviously very ashamed by that event. And that's when I decided to change my name because that's how much pressure I felt I was under uh, in terms of uh, what was happening back in Iran. Um, but I think that uh, inside Iran, there are, again, the new generation who are tired of rhetoric, who are tired of the posters of martyrs, because, of course, we respect the million people who died in the Iran-Iraq war. But there are people who want to move on and be able to have, you know, a, a civil society and a life and to be able to share in their future and to embrace their history. And I think that uh, they would like to look uh, beyond the hostage crisis and be able to, you know, and are very much looking forward to a new day when, where there is dialogue. Um, my colleagues who have gone to Iran from NPR, every single one of them say that every Iranian they met who was not in the government loves Americans and loves, would want to come here. But it is those, you know, officials in the government who very much have say right now, clearly, who are, you know, um, against the great Satan, as they call it. So it's just important to understand that, that the people of Iran don't feel that way. Is it true that recent elections in Iran have brought more liberal politicians into uh, positions of power in that country? Do you see that trend continuing? Uh, and will women be part of this movement? Well, it's very difficult to tell. Uh, I think that uh, the women's movement is something that cannot remain, will not remain invisible because it is very active. It is, uh, uh, you know, very prominent. And there are women who are now have been put on trial because of this very activity, the campaign, the one million campaign signature. And so I think that uh, in terms of the uh, local politics in Iran, that the last election did bring in more liberal candidates. But I think in the larger uh, context, we have to understand that there are still candidates who have been uh, selected, you know, selectively. And so it's not like it's a democracy and anybody can run. And so the new people who've come in represent all the voices of Iran. That's still not the case. But I think even within the conservative government of the Iran, the, these new voices will bring pressure to somebody like President Ahmadinejad to sort of uh, step back a little bit and not be as uh, belligerent in his rhetoric and not try to, you know, once again uh, ruin the name of Iran in the international scene. So I think definitely internally he has come under a lot of pressure. And uh, uh, Rafsanjani, who was the person who actually ran against him, um, one of the people who ran against him in the presidential uh, uh, elections recently, uh, has actually uh, forcefully gone to the clerical leaders of Iran and talked about how you know, he needs to back off. And so it's really interesting to look at that dynamics. And uh, my hope is that Iran has gone so far to the right that it has no choice but to change from within. And, um, but again, that is slow and uh, not satisfying.
You've given us the impression today that women are uh, the most progressive force in Iran today in terms of uh, political or cultural shifting. Is, is that the case? And also, is it the case that uh, women are the most progressive force in other areas of the Islamic world? I am the spiritual sister of the first woman who was stoned after the Islamic Republic. That is why women are so active, because we are the ones, and the women of Iran are the ones who have been most affected by the change of government in the last 30 years. And they are also the ones who are most affected throughout the world in terms of Islamic law that is not, is discriminatory against women. And so clearly there is a reason why you see this political rise of the power of women, is because they have found their voice, they are getting educated. And so I think that it's just inevitable that uh, women are going to make a change. Um, I do believe with all my conviction that the next revolution will be an intellectual one started by women. And you see this right now uh, on a very small scale. But I think that the Prophet Muhammad always said that the pen is mightier than the sword. And we have to put a lot of capital in that because that is our heritage. And the poets, Suf, you know, Sufi poets, Rumi or Saadi or Hafez, they were all Muslims. They were all good Muslims. But they had this magnificent other side to them, which teached us about moderation and tolerance. And that is also part of my blood. For many Americans who are non-Muslims, uh, the clothing required of, of uh, some Muslim women, the hijab or the burqa, uh, come across as an, an act or a symbol of submission rather than a religious practice. How have you resolved this for yourself? And do you want to make any comments to those of us who may not understand the significance of that clothing? Sure. I think that the importance uh, is modesty. And so throughout the Islamic world, you'll see different ways where women are veiled, some who aren't veiled, who still are modest. And so I think that uh, in Saudi Arabia, the women are covered from head to toe. And uh, there are many women who are actually strengthened and empowered by that. The fact that they are behind a veil gives them a, a tremendous amount of strength that they can determine who they relate to, you know. And so I think that when you think of women who are veiled, you don't always have to have pity for them because for many Muslim women, it is a source of great, tremendous amount of pride. But again, I look at the uh, sort of vast amount of differences in interpretation of what is a modest dress. When in Malaysia and Indonesia, they can wear their national uh, costumes and you know the veils, they can show their hair and it's very colorful. And so that woman is just as much a good Muslim as the one who in, uh, you know, in another country that is more secular who isn't veiled. So I think that um, it, when you look at it and you see the images of the Afghan women in burqas, uh, that the importance is to be able to give women the choice and not to have the state mandate that you need to wear this color of scarf, you know, for the rest of your life. And so I think that's sort of where the dialogue is, is that women should be able to have the choice to choose their modest dress. Last year, Salman Rushdie spoke here at the forum, and he warned us of uh, the terrorists, the danger of terrorists in his book, uh, Shalom on the Clown. What is the best way, do you think, to deal with the threat of terrorists? 
Uh, well, I think that we need to remember that the pen is mightier than the sword. And I think as when moderate Muslims, intelligent, educated Muslims throughout the world rise and teach their children about the importance of moderations and tolerance, which they do, but are more vocal about it, then there is an opportunity to be able to take away the, uh, the religion that has been hijacked by militants. And so I think that uh, there is a part that moderate Muslims throughout the world have to do, and um, it's important uh, as we have on many occasions spoken out, but it's important to have more a unified voice. And I think that is part of the problem, is that uh, Muslims throughout the world aren't necessarily unified. And so if there would be more unity, there would be an opportunity to stand up against uh, militants. Um, and there are, it's important for you to know that there are clerics in Iran who have issued fatwas against suicide bombing, who have condemned it, who have said that it is wrong, that it is un-Islamic, that the people who do that will go to hell. And so we don't hear enough of those edicts, but they are out there. And I think there needs to be more that are vocal so that uh, as, a Muslim, as, a, you know, as a Muslim community, we can show that our intellect and the pen is uh, more powerful. Minnesotans love to read, and there are hundreds of book clubs around the Twin Cities, and the book Reading Lolita in Tehran has uh, been a popular one in local book clubs. Uh, that book frames for us a particular perspective of intellectual activity in Iran. Is there really a lot of secret study going on as described in the book in Iran? Sure. Uh, you know, my colleague Jackie Leiden uh, in 1995 went to a university room and held up her microphone and recorded a woman named Azar Nafisi in a classroom in Tehran teaching Jane Austen. And I had headphones on back at NPR and I was listening to this and I was absolutely fascinated because I also didn't realize the level and the intensity of curi intellectual curiosity in Iran. And when Jackie before she went to Iran in 1995, Iranian-Americans here said to her, no one will talk to you. And she came back with, you know, I mean, when I say 28 hours of tape, you might not think that's a lot, but that is a lot of, into, you know, dialogue and uh, curiosity. And um, she was in, you know, um, editorial rooms of uh, intellectual magazines where people were having dialogue. And the sad thing is that many of those people, their work has been curtailed and some of them have been jailed. And so I think it's gotten worse right now in terms of being able to have these dialogues. But that there, it definitely is thriving. A question that's a bit more personal, reflecting on uh, your own life. When you were in Iran, what did you miss most about America? Um, Big Mac? Oh. It's true because when I came back, I really wanted a Big Mac. But, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, it's really interesting because when I was an anchor on the Islamic Republic of Iran, uh, one day the news director came to me and he said, uh, we are getting complaints that your features are too attractive for television. And are you wearing mascara? And I was wearing the veil. It didn't cover my face, but it covered my 
um, it, my eyes would cover my face. And I pulled on my eyelashes and I said, these are my own natural eyelashes. I don't wear mascara. And uh, within a couple months, they changed the veil and required the anchors on the air to wear something that was more like a half a poncho. And so I remembered I was on a street corner in Tehran getting ready to go to work and I was wearing this black poncho and then a black raincoat and my black sunglasses. And Iranians have a great amount of humor. So this motorcyclist ride back, rides back uh, close to me and he says, um, do you have any relation to Zorro? And that's what I looked like. So people say that when they leave Iran, what they enjoy most is laughter because there isn't enough laughter in Iran. Now that you've been living in America for a couple of decades, what do you miss most about Iran? Um, I think that uh, beautiful musical instrument that we heard, the Kurdish songs, um, the sounds of the streams, uh, the sound of the call to prayer, and um, really, my colleague uh, asked me once, what should I bring back for you? And I said, bring me some of the earth. And I have it today um, in a pot from New Mexico because um, that's what I miss. Left, left us with the impression, I think, that you are hopeful about uh, change in Iran and throughout the Islamic world. Uh, how does that uh, hope affect your own life personally? Well, when I uh, began on the journey of writing my memoir, I had the opportunity to work with a seasoned writer and uh, uh, to be able to um, give not necessarily a tell-all book, but something of that nature. And after a couple months of going through that process, I woke up in the middle of the night and I was sweating and I was crying. And I said, I can't do this. This is not what I'm about. That the blessings that have come to me in my life is what has made me who I am. And so I have to not dwell on the negative. Because if I dwell on the negative, I will not be able to move forward. My four children will not be able to move forward. And so it has been very important to me throughout my life, and especially in the last couple of years, to emphasize the positive. And so that is why I came out of the closet and said, my name is Iran. Because even up to a few years ago, I would be embarrassed and perhaps I would, uh, in a greeting, tell people that I was Persian and not Iranian. And I think that it's important for us to uh, claim where we are from and be proud of it because there is so much goodness in it. In that same vein, how do you uh, intend to pass on your, your love for your uh, Iranian past to your children? Sure. Well, I mean, I think you know, all Americans of bicultural ancestry uh, have this same dilemma of how do you do this at home and how do you balance. And uh, I've been very lucky. My son, who's 22 years old, has uh, on his own uh, fasted during the month of Ramadan and uh, he places several Qurans next to his bed and he reads it um, because it gives him a transient sort of spiritual pride. Uh, my daughter, who's 17, is a fabulous Persian cook. And so uh, it, it's sort of just making sure that those uh, important um, elements of life, which is faith in God, importance of family, family unity, integrity for your own cultural heritage, very similar things to what Americans respect and wish for their own families, that you try to do that as much as possible on any given day or month or week. Thank you, Devar Ardalan.